0: Welcome to the 2 Degree C Climate Chat Podcast, your weekly guide to everything that's happening within the climate around the world. My name is Neil Vinniecook. I'm the Executive Director and a founding member of 2 Degree C. Each week in the 2 Degree C Climate Chat podcast, we discuss issues relating to the climate crisis. So join us as we explore in the 2 Degree C Climate Chat. Okay, hi everyone. Thanks for joining us for the 2 Degree C Climate Chat. Um, Today, joining me, we have uh, quite a team. We've got Dr. Carson Schein, who some of you have met before, as well as uh, my partner, Jenny Disson, both uh, founding members of Two Degree C. Uh, Joining us also today, we're very uh, happy to have um, uh, High Touch High Tech and Dan Shaw and Terry Connolly. So welcome to both of you. Glad to be here. We're happy to have you. Um, Okay, Dan, um, maybe we should start with what is High Touch High Tech? High Touch High Tech provides
1: hands-on science experiences for kids. Um, It it came, the the four words, High Touch High Tech, High Touch is hands-on, and High Tech is preparing for this high-tech world that we all live in. So we provide uh, children with uh, stimulating, compelling, interesting, hands-on science experiences at a young age to uh, empower them to uh, gain an interest and hopefully lifelong love of science.
0: Gotcha, and you bring this to the classrooms,
1: is that correct? Yep, we bring them physically right into the classrooms. Uh, nowadays, of course, during the pandemic, we, we, uh, we deliver science kits, our own science kits to the classroom, and then we lead them, one of our scientists will lead that classroom uh, virtually on Zoom.
0: That's great, Dan. Thank you. And, and Terry, how has the pandemic affected um, you know, your ability to reach children? Uh,
2: well, you know, obviously with the schools mostly being remote, although some are going back uh, part-time or maybe even some are full-time, of course, they're not allowing third parties into the classroom. So what we've done is we've taken our in-person hands-on experience and we've repackaged it into a virtual experience. And so... Uh, What we do is we take the materials for a program, and now instead of having group activities or shared materials, every student receives an individualized science kit. We'll deliver those materials to the school in advance, and then our science instructor will guide the kids through the program virtually. But the kids still get to be hands on, they still get to perform the experiments, and they still get to to do what we call our make and take activities where of course now they get to, to make their experiments and they get to keep them. Um, ultimately with the goal being the, the science experience is more meaningful and memorable when it's hands-on. Um, and you know we've, we've been teaching uh, virtual classes almost daily and we've received really positive reviews and the kids um, are that much more excited when we're delivering our experiences because it changes things up, just like it would normally uh, in school. We're providing that same level of of kind of break in content and presentation from the regular classroom teacher. Um, We get to come in and kind of be the superstars for uh, a little bit and get the kids super excited and they get to roll up their sleeves and and become scientists themselves. Um, It's really been a, a big learning curve for us, but something that we're really excited to see uh, be successful and something that I think even post pandemic, we will continue to offer, which will allow us to reach just that many more students whose schools, maybe um, are far reaching that wouldn't make sense for us to, to go to in person, but now we can offer this uh, additional experience and reach that many more kids.
0: That's great. Uh, Carson, I wanted to talk about uh, current events uh, uh, today, specifically because we're recording today as much, of no- uh, as, as much of North America is blanketed in very cold weather, um, both uh, in snow and ice. Um, and, uh, I thought that maybe we'll just take a second to talk about this because in last week's episode, we learned that there was a difference between weather and climate and, uh, you know, you, you, explained how these, these two things differ. Um, but I wanted to ask you if you can explain the process that's taking place and how this relates back to climate.
3: Obviously, uh, yeah, the current conditions are entirely weather right now. Um, and uh, storms uh, bringing a lot of snow and cold uh, bitter cold in some cases to much of the much of north america right now um, but this is a lot, has a lot to do with uh, climate change in a in, in a subtle way in that the polar vortex uh, that is commonly uh, discussed on the by the uh, broadcast meteorologists is something that climate change that global warming in particular arctic warming which is uh, accelerating faster than much of the rest of the planet is tending to weaken the strength of the vortex and as it does that it's uh, allowing the vortex to become uh, a bit wavier and uh, descend farther into the lower latitudes um, sometimes reaching down to texas or florida even Um, and a lot of that has to do simply with the, the vortex is sort of the band of uh of wind flow around the arctic that in the summertime when temperatures are warm it's compressed up into northern canada and siberia and such and then in the winter as that cold air in the arctic uh strengthens and the warm air in the in the lower latitudes weakens it's allowed to expand uh, equatorward so the polar vortex is really um describing the edge of the temperature discontinuity between the cold Arctic air and the warmer air at lower latitudes. And since the Arctic is warming faster than the lower latitudes under global warming, that temperature difference is becoming less. And as it becomes less, that weakens the boundary and the boundary then can push farther south and push farther north. Um, into these large wave patterns that can bring frigid Arctic air down to lower latitudes.
0: Gotcha. Um, it's somewhat akin to opening the, the freezer door and watching the air tumble out. Is that correct? In a sense,
3: yes. In a sense, yes. If the air in your in your kitchen is cold, cold already, you won't see that uh, in such a dramatic pattern. But if it's warmer, then yes, you will.
0: Wow. So, um, Jenny, I was thinking about this, um, you know, this has tremendous repercussions on um, energy and transportation, and and those those effects are quite obvious, you know, with power outages and, you know, roads being closed. But, you know, what are the less obvious consequences of this kind of um, um, weather is taking place?
4: Well, you certainly see changes in ecosystem behavior. You see changes in population migration, whether it's human or wildlife or Um, birds, I think you start to see um, how, you know, impacts like this affect uh, underserved communities and tribal nations across all of the economic and social sectors. You start to see obviously implications to, you know, infrastructure and transportation um, and, you know, secondary or tertiary consequences in things that we all depend on, whether it's manufacturing, goods and services, retail. Um, You start to see uh, all of this manifest in all of these sectors.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, just actually, in a conversation this morning, I was speaking to somebody who had a delay getting their child um, to school because the water pipes had burst in the school. So, you know, we do um, understand that there are tremendous ramifications uh, and upset in people's daily lives. And we do hope that uh, people are staying safe. Um, I think Dan, you had a thought?
1: Oh, I was just gonna share that I was recently watching a episode of Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he was uh, trying to share the difference between weather versus climate. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, he, He was walking a dog on a very long leash. And basically he was walking in a straight line and that was climate and the dog was meandering all around him on this little walk. And that represented like weather. So, you know, weather over a long period of time is, is it becomes, you know, you can refer to it as the climate. So I thought that was a very, very interesting, and you know, we're in a child oriented educational business. So I, I tuned right into that and thought that that was very, very interesting.
0: You're listening to a conversation about climate innovation. Coming up.
1: I read once a long time ago that, you know, the, the idea is people think, oh, we're, uh, you know, we're, um, you know, we inherited the earth from our parents, but that's not really true. We're actually borrowing the earth from our kids and future generations. So if we want the earth to remain the same we need to make, you know, immediate um, changes and those changes have to be with kids and the mindset so that we can make these difficult choices to leave, you know, fossil fuel based energies and, and move to renewable energies and solar and wind and all of these things that we can uh, prevent continued uh, climate destruction. And, and
0: That's up next when 2 Degree C Climate Chat continues. Described barefoot luxury, the casually sophisticated Southern Cross Club is Little Cayman's original resort. This hidden gem is as unique and vibrant as the island it inhabits. A true island treasure, it is the perfect place to dive, fish and relax. Its 14 beachfront bungalows are situated on 900 feet of white sand, only minutes from the world-class diving found only in Little Cayman. Visit www.southerncrossclub.com to book your escape to tranquility.
2: Hey, this is Megan Haney-Greer, freediver, ocean explorer, and marine educator. Also, the imperfect conservationist. You're listening to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast.
0: Well, maybe you can both uh, give us a little background about how you got to where you are and this journey that you're on.
1: All right. So uh, let let me jump in first. And uh, I founded High Touch High Tech back in 1992. And uh, from that one location, we've expanded to uh, 35 locations in 11 countries and uh, uh, working on um, development in a couple of other countries right now, even in our pandemic. So there's, there's tremendous demand and value in our programming. Um, we provide, in and, and, you know, normal times, we provide hands-on science experiences that, that meet the curriculum and we go right into classrooms and provide those, what we call, in-school science field trips. But we've had to, of course, pivot now and we're providing virtual content uh, and delivering science kits to, to teachers and students. But um, but the programming is just incredible. It's uh, it, it's really uh, shown tremendous growth. Uh, it's very popular, and kids love science, and parents value science, and that is what has led to our um, our successful uh, concept.
0: Yeah, and you you mentioned that um, you know you've got these locations distributed across the uh, across the world. Um, wh- wh- you know, uh, you're obviously in you know the United States, but where else are you located?
1: Oh, oh, well, uh, Terry Dactol, would you like to jump in there?
2: <laughs> sure. Would you like me to give my background or jump in and answer Neil's question?
0: Oh, you can start wherever you like. Yeah. No uh, rules.
2: To, uh, to- jump on to Dan's commentary. So uh, we're currently located in obviously the United States. We're in Canada. Um, High-Touch High-Tech programs can also be found in Morocco, Nigeria, um, also in Turkey, in Qatar, Dubai, and then we're also in Southeast Asia, including Singapore, Vietnam, China, and South Korea. So our Uh, We like to say that the sun never sets on high-touch high-tech because, you know, based on the, you know, we're pretty much covering all the different time zones with our our fun hands-on field trips.
0: And am I correct in saying that these are almost exclusively all children's programs or are they adult programs as well?
2: They are predominantly children's children's programs. Um, However, we have from time to time provided similar experiences for senior adults. Um, it's it's really a, a beautiful experience. We've worked with um, adults in uh, community programs, retirement communities. Um, in fact, we even have a few locations who have done um, a program that is multi generational, where they'll have preschool age or elementary aged children brought to a, a retirement community to participate in our programs in conjunction with the senior adults. So wow. you know our programs really are enjoyed by all ages.
0: Wow, and uh, I mean, we're a corporate partner with uh, High Touch High Tech, but um, maybe you can give some background to the other types of corporate partnerships that you've embarked on. Um,
2: So we've also embarked on uh, corporate partnerships with Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines, uh, Beaches Family Resorts, and uh, Dan, if you want to jump in and share a little more background about those partnerships, and a few of the newer ones that uh, we've recently created.
1: Well, you know, our, the most wonderful part of our partnerships with Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines is that's how Terry Dactyl joined our team uh, 15 years ago. So um, it was through that partnership. Uh, we were working closely together, and uh, that's how she was able to. Uh, uh, jump onto our team, which is uh, which was a wonderful uh, opportunity for High Touch High Tech. And she's really helped us uh, grow throughout the year. So we're always grateful for that. And always recognize that through that partnership with Royal Caribbean, uh, Terry joined our team. But um, the Royal Caribbean experience has been wonderful for us because, and wonderful for them because truly they're offering uh, childcare programming uh, and the idea is that if the kids are super busy, the parents can enjoy the casino and lay around by the pool and, and uh, you know enjoy being on a vacation while their kids can be edutained and you know, en- entertained, but with a component of solid education. And uh, since 1998, uh, we've been providing uh, the adventure science program on board Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines fleet-wide. And uh, from there, we are in four of the Sandals Beaches family resorts uh, in Jamaica and the Turks and Caicos. And um, we're also, our newest partnership is with um, the JW Marriott, um, and it's called the Plant Riverside District in Savannah, Georgia. Um, and that's, um, they're, they're a dinosaur themed, uh, hotel. So we're providing dinosaur activities there for them.
0: Well, that's great. And w- w- we know that you're not exclusively doing dinosaur, even though we're, uh, <laughs> we're talking a lot about dinosaurs, but what w- w- can you maybe pass on some of the types of experiments that you're doing with children so that, um, you know, and to what purpose? Sure. Sure. Terry, you want to take that or would you like me to?
2: You can jump in. Um, we, we really do a, a variety of experiments covering all of the, the major scientific concepts. Um, our, our programs are aligned with uh, the national science standards. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're doing um, experiments about air and, and weather, um, learning about air pressure, uh, learning about the strength and, and power of air. You know, we are doing programs about um, Disasters and phenomena uh, around the world where we erupt volcanoes, uh, we learn about earthquakes. We even have an experiment where kids are learning about the hurricane hunters uh, that go into the storms and, you know, um, capture all the, the readings and uh, the wind speeds and, and other things. Um, you know, additional experiments uh, talking about matter, uh, chemistry. Of course, one of our fan favorites is. Where we, uh, you know, we make our, our own version of silly putty, which we call space mud, um, and of course, you know, we, we cover uh, plants and uh, we cover the environment, animals. Uh, where we learn about uh, migration of birds, uh, we learn about adaptations that animals have had to make over the years um, based on changes to their natural habitats. Um, we we learn about the food chain. Um, You know, the the list goes on and on. We have a a library of close to, or or more than at this point, 250 different science experiments. Um, So there's really a lot of information that kids are learning. And and pretty much, uh, you know, our goal is to get kids excited, to uh, engage their imagination, to teach them how to make observations of the world around them. Um, and ultimately, with the goal of getting them excited to learn about the world around them, because the way we see it is science is everywhere. Um, and all you have to do is, is look for it and, and you'll see it. And so to spark that imagination and curiosity to get them to explore and engage with their environment, that's, that's ultimately our goal. And you know, if, if that creates a, a career path for future scientists, then you know, we've, we've done our job and then some.
0: That's great, and, you know that actually segues slightly to where I wanted to go because when I was doing my own research about high touch, high tech, I found that you know, Dan, it seemed to be that your mission was to you know to pull science out of the books and put it into the hands of children, which and that really resonated with me. But um, what do you see as the role of climate um, in and the future of you know, STEM education?
1: Oh, it, you know, it, it, it's the most important subject. I mean, if we really want to have the world be the same as it is for us. And when we grew up, we absolutely must uh, uh, weave climate education into almost every one of our programs. And that, that's a big desire. Um, I had read once a long time ago that, you know, the, the idea is people think, oh, we're, uh, you, know, we're um, you know we inherited the earth from our parents, but that's not really true. We're actually borrowing the earth from our kids and future generations. So if we want the earth to remain the same, we need to make you know, immediate um, changes. And those changes have to be with kids and the mindset so that we can make these difficult choices to leave you know, fossil fuel-based energies and, and move to renewable energies and solar and wind and all of these things that we can uh, prevent continued uh, climate destruction. And, and as Jenny pointed out, the changes in ecosystems and the changes of behaviors of humans and animals. I mean, it's just this chain of events. So we feel that emphasis on uh, climate change uh, is very, very important. Because one of our most popular programs is actually our weather programs. You know, because students everywhere are going to be learning, especially in the U.S., are learning about the weather at all different age levels. So we developed uh, a program called Global Fever uh, quite a number of years ago to begin introducing the concept of global warming and uh, sea levels rising and and what are these impacts and what do we look for? So we are trying to really weave. Uh, climate education into almost all of our programs because we have a, um, a, a, a attentive audience. No matter if they're booking our Chem Fun program or they're, they've booked our uh, Germ Jungle program, no matter what the concepts are and the topics are, there's always a place to uh, to plug uh, the environment in, in there. I think it's super important for kids.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I know you and Karsten um, and Jenny, you've been in in talks about, um, you know, implementing um, your strategies between two degrees C and high touch, high tech Um, Karsten, Karsten, how would you share the strategy to deploy the um, two degree C leaf sensor um, with high touch, high tech?
3: You know, I really would focus a lot of that effort on, uh, introducing students to the concept of how do we measure the climate how do we monitor the climate and you know that it's not as um, mystical as as it might as as somebody might think that you know there are just observations somewhere else that some government is taking but that each student can actually um, gather reliable observations and learn how to make observations that are you know, unbiased, and then incorporate that into the research that they do, the, the studies they do, the analysis that they might do in a STEM curriculum. So they're using, their, they're owning their own data, basically. They're, uh, you know, rather than using somebody else's data, that they may not understand, or it just seems, you know, far and away, they're now using data that they themselves may have collected around their community, um, in their parks, on on you know field trips that they may take into the into natural areas so you know it's it's a really important component of the scientific process is the data collection as i think you know dan and uh, terry would would agree uh, you know gathering the data is is, is absolutely essential to uh, you know being invested in the scientific process absolutely
1: absolutely And and I I feel it's so great because, you know, you've developed these LEAF sensors, uh, and I feel like our role is going to be to get those LEAF sensors into the hands of students that are participating in our programs. And that would be, you know, to the tune of 16 million globally, somehow.
3: (laughs) That that will definitely uh, reduce a lot of the, the climate data gaps that are out there right now. Uh,
0: To to that point, uh, Dan, I actually want to bring Jenny in here because uh, we know that climate change is having a disproportionate um, effect on children in particular. Um, Jenny, maybe you can, uh, you know, shed some light on, you know, the the disparity um, uh, along economic and racial lines.
4: Yeah, certainly. So, you know, we think about children and children's ability to cope and understand and manage stress. it spans lots of different dimensions. I think our children are receiving the information in their classroom that this is happening and they see the events on the news or hear it through other channels. And they can, and like we have with the pandemic, they can either harbor the stress internally or we can take initiatives and efforts like with the LEAF and like with High, tech, high, high Touch High Tech on how do we then rechannel that energy or that stress into solutions? Um, I'll just mention my personal story. Yesterday I was driving to Chapel Hill and my daughter saw on Highway 40 in North Carolina, all the trees being torn down. And there was this massive piles of trees all over the highway. And, and she said, but this is not good for planet earth. And, she, and I said, well, what would you like to do about it? And her response was, well, let's write the governor. So we sat in the car and wrote a letter to uh, North Carolina governor Cooper And she wrote uh, the sentence, uh, basically, um, the trees are, the trees being cut down are not good for planet Earth. How about we work with the school system and give them seeds so that kids can plant the seeds.
2: Um, And
4: it was uh, really interesting. This was all her um, because she, in a way with her solution, she was indicating that, you know, development and progress is inevitable and population growth is obviously inevitable, but what can we do to help minimize the impact while we think of, you know, real big scale solutions? This is first grade, Uh, she's six. Um, But, you know, I think that there are uneven and undistributed impacts. And I think underserved communities that don't have access to good education or really it's more about methods and fun things and solutions where they feel a sense of ownership on what they can do about it. Um, And what I like about this podcast and what I think we're trying to do with our partnership is um, enabling simple methods that help science improve um, pathways to solutions and that they have a role in that journey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I fully agree with that. Um, thank you, Jenny. And I, I, yeah. I think that um, you know children, as you as you said before, you know they they're absorbing all of the, the content, even though w- we may assume that they're not ex- absorbing it to the to the level that we understand it. But they're certainly ab- absorbing things, and um, offering offering children a meaningful way to participate um, in a positive uh, climate um, adaption um, is is a good a good strategy.
1: Jenny, let us know if uh, your daughter hears back from Governor Cooper.
4: we Will do. You know, it's funny. So I was going hit to hit send on that letter. And then I thought, no, part of our job here is capacity building. So my strategy was to engage with the teacher to then get the principal involved. Oh, and, wonderful. Um, and then have her classmates perhaps sign the letter with her and then submit it um, as a way to see like can we get the like a large seat packet for the school and then orchestrate a field day and then work obviously work with our forest service locally and other experts on so now you have data collection techniques you have an actionable activity you get outdoor exposure and it helps to promote healthy people how planet. plan it so you know um, many of us working mothers and professionals and educators have to Achieve five goals at once or five objectives with one activity. And um, so I'm inspired. Thank you. And I'd love to further build our partnership with High Touch, High Tech to see um, how we can work on this particular topic.
1: Well, as, as some, I, I assume your, your daughter goes to a local Asheville school. Uh, she does. And, and, if, and if you do get a consensus at the school and her classroom, We'd love to provide a uh, weather, climate-related hands-on experience for their classroom. We could do it okay. virtually and send the science kits.
4: That sounds great. Let's a, uh, follow as up as afterwards. a fun reward. Yeah, yeah, I like it.
3: Yeah, I think uh, what's uh, what's really interesting in in this discussion, and it just strikes strikes me is the new new generations that are that are coming along. I think they are starting to fully realize that. If they want solutions, they're going to have to, to come up with them themselves. They're going to have to participate. They're not going to, they don't want to depend on others to solve these problems. Um, they see that uh, the struggles that we've had uh, in our generations to, to have that happen. And they're taking a different approach, which is really nice to see. Yeah,
1: definitely.
3: Well,
4: and I think the unique aspect of the sort of thinking and approach is that we're enabling a mindset that is a data-driven solution approach. So, um, you know, there's, there's no way to interpret numbers other than what the numbers are. A two is a two is a two. Um, two is not a three. And so I think uh, what I like about what we're doing is helping our gener- future generations understand that. A data-driven observation is, um, you know, a reliable source of information or knowledge for that moment and for that space and time.
2: Well, and and in, a, in an experiential learning environment, um, being hands-on creates and develops the problem-solving skills. So kids, mm-hmm. you know, identify the problem and then through that hands-on experience, up with potential solutions so it's actually of it comes full circle and and getting to, to what karsten had said um kids are learning you know this generation of children they're learning that if they want to see change they have to get involved um you know it's it's not like previous generations where we're sitting back we're learning from a textbook and just reciting and regurgitating what, what we were told to learn. Um, you know, it's, it's this generation now is not not just regurgitating, they, they're processing it and identifying and taking the steps to, to make a change and to move things forward.
4: As Gandhi said, you must be the change you wish to implement.
2: You wish to be, yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs>
0: Well, I think it's just fantastic. We're, you know, all, all, all of us at Two Degree C are certainly excited about our, uh, our partnership with High Touch High Tech. And we know that once the children return back to the classrooms all around the world, um, uh, we know that uh, you're going to be offering them engaging and, and meaningful content. And we're happy to be a part of that journey. And uh, we look forward to some success stories as that rollout occurs. And, you know, we certainly wish High Touch High Tech uh, all the greatest success uh, in the, in the coming year absolutely well thank you thank you thanks for joining us today guys
2: thank you been a pleasure we're certainly excited about this partnership with two degrees c and uh, seeing it blossom and you know we're going to hit the ground running as soon as uh, as soon as those kids are back in the class
0: happy to be there yep absolutely thanks guys thank you you're listening to a conversation about climate innovation coming up how do you think that uh, species are adapting um, to climate change and what do you think we can expect to see?
3: Yeah, so the e- the easiest thing for any species to do, um, especially if it's a mobile species like sharks or or uh, land animals that, that can move, is to shift to environments that are what they're used to, uh, rather than trying to adapt to an environment that's change. So if they can, like sharks, if they move into, waters that used to be too cold for them but now are just right. Uh, whereas waters where they used to uh, be happy are now becoming too warm
0: for them. That's up next when 2 Degree C Climate Chat continues. Blue Ocean Art is the premier collective of marine artists and a proud partner of 2 Degree C. From some of the world's most renowned underwater photographers to painters, sculptors and multimedia artists from around the world, Blue Ocean Art's large collection features moving imagery showcasing the beauty of the world's oceans. Our artist's passion to capture the moments in special places in our oceans affords the rest of us a glimpse into that mystical realm that makes up so much of our planet and has a deep impact on all of us, yet we know so little about. Our shared interest in protecting the environment means we look forward to using the Leaf Climate Sensor on our projects and trips as soon as they're able to reach the critical next stage of product development. Visit www.blueoceanart.com to see their selection of fine art prints and decorative products to bring the beauty of the world's coral reefs and underwater environments into your space. Listeners of the 2 Degree C Climate Chat podcast can exclusively take 25% off with the code 2DC at checkout. Okay, so uh, let's pivot away uh, towards the news and um, as, we, as we do each week. And so for podcast listeners uh, for the first time, we do have a newsletter um, called the Two Degree C Climate Check. And if you're interested to follow along, we do send out uh, a couple of um, hand-picked selection of uh, news headlines that we think are interesting, as well as um, an important report of the week that we feel we'd like to share with people. So please go and, uh, and subscribe at two 2degreec.org and uh, we'll get you the two degree C climate check um, this week. I did find a couple of interesting ones, uh, Carson. I know you and I like to laugh along sometimes uh, when when we, we look at the headlines. But um, one of the ones that what I found was interesting. There was one about the an alkalinity trap at the bottom of the world. Uh, maybe you can explain a little bit about um, the alkalinity of the ocean and how this is changing.
3: Certainly, uh, o- ocean acidification is a is a big topic and. Uh, the, you know, the ocean acts as uh, probably the largest sink of carbon uh, dioxide uh, in our environment. And, but it does so at a very slow rate, and that rate is dependent on, on temperature. So colder temperatures such as we have in the Arctic and Antarctic oceans tend to uh, more readily absorb carbon dioxide. Um, as, as that carbon dioxide is absorbed though, it changes the alkalinity acidity, uh, the pH of the ocean. And uh, so what we're seeing today is that um, these, um, these processes are making the ocean uh, from slightly basic to a little bit more acidic, uh, which is making it difficult for a lot of uh, shell species, shellfish and such uh, that need that carbon to build their shells and calcium carbonate shells and stuff to do so. And uh, in some cases, the, in the, the change in alkalinity is actually causing those shells to dissolve, and so the coral
1: effects on the coral reefs as well, right?
3: Coral reefs as well, uh, snails, lobsters, uh, any basically any uh, anything that's building a calcium carbonate shell is wow. uh, is going to be affected.
0: Yeah, I think that is certainly a, a question that uh, remains uh, largely unanswered of of how that um, that that system change is going to affect us and. Um, it's definitely want to watch for for those listening um staying in the ocean something that caught my attention um was uh, the it's the headline is climate crisis pushing great white sharks into new waters and i mean uh, you know with everything doom and gloom in the world it's, it's not hard to to look at headlines and go wow you know now we've got sharks involved but i actually clicked on it to read it and um this one was quite interesting carson uh, how do you think that uh, species are adapting to climate change and what do you think we can expect to see
3: yeah so the the easiest thing for any species to do um, especially if it's a mobile species like sharks or or uh, land animals that that can can move is to shift to environments that are what they're used to uh, rather than trying to adapt to an environment that's changed so if they can like sharks if they move into waters that used to be too cold for them, but now are just right, uh, whereas waters there, where they used to uh, be happy are now becoming too warm for them. Um, their prey species are also migrating, so they're following the food, and uh, this is happening on land and in water across uh, a lot of species, uh, so we're seeing a, a large shift in where uh, where we're now finding species, and it's really upsetting a lot of, uh, of food webs uh, that didn't have, used to have predators like apex predators, such as sharks.
0: Yeah. And, and this would affect uh, the survivability of species as well, correct? Uh,
3: absolutely. Certainly uh, species that aren't able to, to uh, mobilize uh, invertebrates, uh, for example, that are in a fixed location. Um, they may, they may undergo such stress that they, uh, they die out. Um other, other species may attempt to move to new climates to maintain that, uh, that uh, habitat that they're used to and find that they don't have uh, enough food to survive in those new places. And yeah. still other prey species may suddenly become susceptible to new predators that they, didn't eat, they don't have a defense against.
0: Yeah. And I, I actually saw a little bit of this uh, in, in my own research. To f- I found this species of spiders in, in, in Portugal that are just, you know, unable to, to um, make the, the, the jump in, in adaption. And um, I think most people would, would look at a loss of a spider species as a good thing. But uh, in this case, I think it's more alarming. And definitely worth uh, looking at deeper. Um, Jenny, I had a question for you because uh, you know, um, certainly in my household, there's there's a lot of uh, discussion about pollen. Uh, We live in an area that has a lot of oak trees, and um, you know, the headline was pollen season grows 20 days in 30 years as climate crisis hits. Hay fever suffers. Um, I know that um, uh, this topic has come up before um, amongst our group, and you know, what do you think? The adaptations are as far as human health um, with regard to the climate change itself.
4: Yeah, so you know we have so much going on. Um, rising temperatures uh, combined with increase in CO two concentrations is changing the mix of our pollutants in the atmosphere, which affect the human health. And you know this particular article talked about just the growth, the elongation of the pollen season by twenty days. Um, and that it's becoming more intense and it's really affecting children and adults um, and it triggers things like allergies and sneezing and itchy eyes and runny nose. Um, You know, adaptation measures um, continue to be examined by epidemiologists. I mean, the more trouble you have being outdoors uh, limits what you can do outdoors, which is really unfortunate because Uh, For those that are outdoor enthusiasts, this can actually um, be quite a deterrent and actually a lot of people use the outdoors for their happiness and and mental and emotional health. Um, They're also talking about how poor um, atmospheric and and pollution and um, pollen impacts are affecting children and their school performance. Um, You know, I I would love to see a discussion with our epidemiologists and experts to think about what are some adaptation strategies. That's a great uh, I idea. Think it's a, I think we need to work on this one.
0: Good. Well,
1: hold that space will, concept, will come back. The whole concept of the crossroads of climate and
0: health is really uh, compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. scary. <laughs> Well, and, and even, it's not just humans. Um, I think that uh, any, any pet owner could certainly reflect on um, um, their, their own experience with their own pets. Um, I know here in Florida, I, I frequently have to change, um, you know, just the way that I walk my dog and the fact that I have to bring, you know, extra water depending where I walk with him. So, um, um, I Neil. think, Hello
4: yeah i would like to mention though you know Mm. if we look at this pandemic as sort of a model for how we have adapted and and things at the crossroads between climate and health you know one it's important that without additional adaptation measures put in place we will see the impacts deteriorate and the cases of asthma and allergies increase Mm. but i am i am hopeful and optimistic i think that um our experience with the pandemic has led us to understand behavior patterns and adaptation measures that could and would be successful. Um, And I think with the data-driven approach, the science would help point us in the right direction of what works and what doesn't. Um, So, you know, I, I just, I think that understanding what those adaptation measures are is the first step.
0: Yeah, very good. Well, thanks very much, guys. I think that'll bring us to the conclusion of today's episode. We want to thank our guests, uh, Dan Shaw and Terry Connolly from High Touch High Tech. Uh, we're so excited to see you guys go forward uh, in the next year and take us with you. And um, but for those of you that are looking to to find High Touch High Tech, you can find them at uh, ScienceMadeFun.net is the place to find them. Um, otherwise, uh, you can find details to that in our blog, which is at 2 degreecorg Thanks for listening to the 2 Degree C Climate Chat podcast. Next week, we'll be interviewing Jim Helm from Blue Ocean Art. So be sure to check back in then or find out more about the stories you just heard by visiting our blog at 2degreeC.org and connect to others like you via our social media. We'd love to hear your stories and climate journeys. And if you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you hear your podcasts.